0: This is The East TraumaCast, with your moderators, Feroz Madden, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah.
1: Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan.
0: And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online
1: Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Hello and welcome to another episode of the East TraumaCast series. I'm your moderator, Firas Mabek. I'm an Assistant Professor of Surgery at the University of Florida in Jacksonville, and I want to remind all of our listeners that we have a new uh, Twitter account uh, at East underscore TraumaCast, at East underscore TraumaCast, where you can check out all the information about upcoming episodes, and we're glad to have your questions and suggestions for future topics. Our topic for today, we're going to be discussing contemporary management of emergencies, related to peptic ulcer disease. Now depending on where you practice, elective ulcer surgery may be virtually obsolete thanks to effective modern anti-ulcer drug management. Despite a declining incidence overall of peptic ulcer disease, the incidence of the disease complicated by either bleeding or perforation has remained fairly constant or in fact even increased slightly, particularly in socioeconomically disadvantaged populations. It's estimated that emerging conditions related to the disease worldwide have an associated mortality of up to 30%. And the data is lacking. There's a few randomized trials addressing this, uh, particularly investigating perforated disease. And we're gonna be discuss some of the uh, tenets and management, the controversies encountered when dealing with this disease. We're really excited to have Dr. Ted Pappas join us today. Dr. Pappas is currently Professor of Surgery and Vice Dean of Medical Affairs at the Duke University School of Medicine. He's a graduate of the Ohio State University School of Medicine, and he completed his surgical residency in 1988 at the Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston. He also serves as a a research fellow at the University of California, and he also holds the position of Distinguished Professor of Surgical Innovation and is the Chief of the Division of Advanced Oncologic and GI Surgery in the Department of Surgery at Duke. So welcome, Dr. Pappas.
0: Thank you, happy to join.
1: So let's begin by discussing the diagnostic approaches and modalities. Unfortunately, uh, there tends to be delays in diagnosis remain quite common. And I'm wondering if we've made any progress on that front. What what should we look for in terms of presentation and risk factors in a patient who presents with a sudden onset of abdominal pain in the emergency room?
0: Well, you know, the sad reality, I guess, is it seems like everybody gets a CAT scan these days. And I guess that's good and bad. And, and as a surgeon, um, we all lament that fact because it seems to... Um, subvert our efforts to get people to ex- uh, examine patients, but certainly, without a scan, the s- the story for perforation, for example, is almost always classic. It's almost a, it's always a s- very sudden onset pain um, at the moment of perforate, perforation. The patients can almost always tell you what time it was, and they have in upper GI perforation from the stomach or duodenum are, are some of the most rigid abdomens you'll see. They tend to be tachycardic and fairly ill, and um, and uh, you know whether you like it or not, most of those patients get scanned. And I think scanning, if it's done, is pretty good. If you haven't figured out that it's perforated peptic ulcer disease, the scan will usually give you enough clues to make the diagnosis.
1: Now, once once the diagnosis is made, this concept of you know resuscitation before surgery, if you, we made that decision. Is there a time frame, you know, before you proceed to the operating room?
0: Well, I think you know you you should go to surgery as soon as you, is reasonable, but uh, fair enough. Most of them come in dehydrated, um, and so they should definitely be hydrated. Uh, Obviously, in a non-bleeding patient, you don't usually worry about their CRIT. If it's bleeding, uh, you know, it's it's a different resuscitation. Um, But I wouldn't say that we spend hours and hours. Most of the time, the patient will have a bunch of free fluid in the upper abdomen, some free air. Um, you'll, You'll often get a peptic ulcer history um, and you know, you'll collect, you'll correct them as far as their hemodynamics gives them some volume, and then gives them give preoperative antibiotics and go to the operating room is what we typically do.
1: Could you envision a scenario where um, I know some people have written about this, where the patient may be treated non-operatively in terms of patient selection?
0: Yeah, and I, you know, I think it's tot- <coughs> totally reasonable. Um, there is there is literature that if you can document that the ulcer is sealed, um, then that seal will, will often stay in place. In other words, the patient has swung the momentum up and, and, and the thing is stuck on the hole and it'll seal itself. And if it has, about 90% of the time, that will be effective. Uh, occasionally some of them re-leak later, but you do have to demonstrate that it's sealed. And so if you happen to do a CT uh, scan with contrast, or you get a, a, a gastrograph and upper GI series. And the thing has sealed. You have the option, um, and on certain patients, you know, it may be exactly the thing to do. the The problem with that uh, literature that surgeons have often find that found that following those patients expectantly expectantly is is tough. Got to keep them NPO for a handful of days, and and you got to watch them carefully for their reperforation rate. Uh, some fo- folks find in a very busy practice, it's often better just to operate, get it done with, so you know that you know you've know you sutured on a patch, and they're not going to have further trouble. So, um, But I, th- I think in selective patients, I still will watch them uh, if I think the thing has been sealed.
1: Mm-hmm. So if you've made a decision to operate, would you consider um, any rapid H lower testing preoperatively? Would that actually change your management at all?
0: Not really. I think... For the most part, for perforation, your H. pylori testing is really for what you're going to do post-op to prevent recurrent ulceration because, as you know, an H. pylori patient will, ha- will have a higher incidence of re- re-ulceration, and you need to eradicate the H. pylori. So, it needs to be done at some time, but it's not going to affect what you're going to do immediately, in my opinion.
1: Okay. So, we're in the operating room, and, you know, the general principles are source control and treating the ulcer diaphysis. Um, take us through, what's your approach when exploring these patients, whether it's open or laparoscopic, kind of your decision tree as far as, do you actually stitch the whole closed or do the metopexy, You know the time-honored uh, debate, um, and, and who would actually require a definitive anti procedure?
0: Everybody needs a patch, for sure, of some sort. Let's just talk about that first, and then we can talk lap versus open. You know, my opinion, uh, you should be patching the hole and not closing the hole. The problem with closing it first and then suturing a patch on is occasionally as you try to suture that hole shut, the sutures will pull through because it's a very inflamed ulcer. It's been there a while. And so it's not easy to actually close sometimes. So I, I usually recommend you lay the sutures in. You then put the omental patch in the hole and then you tie the sutures over the patch, which is a, it's a technically a patch, it's not closing the hole, it's patching the hole. <laughs> and I think it's easier to do, number one, um, than it is to try to actually close the hole and then have the things pull through and then have the hole bigger, and um, rarely do you have that problem if you lay the sutures in first and just tie the sutures over uh, over the piece of omentum you put up there. And you could use omentum, some, Sometimes in a patient that's had multiple re-operations, the momentum doesn't want to come up there, and you can you can bring down the falciform, the various things you can use to lay in there, but the principle is the same. You lay a tongue of tissue, and you tie the sutures over the top, and, and you've laid those in ahead of time and then tied them over the top.
1: Absolutely. Now, that's, reassuring. That's, that's what we're, we're doing. That's what we're teaching our residents, but you, you see variations in... Uh, and different eponyms for the approaches, but yeah, we we tend to find you know the tissue, like you said, is edematous and firewall and the sutures tend to not hold.
0: Um, so patch and hole typically works works well. Now the uh, lap versus open, I you know again is like as usual. I think it depends on your bias about it, what you're good at. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're good at suturing, it's not that hard. Um, it's not easy to do with an endo stitch at all because you can't get an endo stitch. In, at the angle to put those sutures in, most of the time, uh, I guess you might be able to. But most, most of the time, it's a free suturing technique. They're not hard sutures. It's two or three. Um, but there are some people who feel uncomfortable with that, and if they're uncomfortable, they ought to open. Uh, the most important thing is you got to get a patch on the hole. That's the most important thing. And and um, the incision is going to be a morbidity. But if you don't patch it right, that's that's the morbidity. So. I would say if you feel comfortable suturing it laparoscopically, go for it. Uh, the nice part about it that is, through those small incisions, you can irrigate the whole abdomen. Once once you patched it, you can get everything washed out and clean up the abdomen pretty well by looking all around, which is kind of nice. Um, but one way or the other, i you know I'd say if you're comfortable suturing laparoscopically, go for it. And you're using silk. I don't think it makes that much of a difference to be honest with you. Um, you know I think. I think silk is okay, you know, it's a little bit old fashioned. Uh, then again, I'm old, I guess, but uh, silk is fine. But if you want to use vicryl, it's probably okay too, to be honest with you. I mean, patches that stay for the time that is gonna be there are probably gonna be there. You know, the leaks that happen from patches that you put on don't happen at 10 days, they happen at two days. Sure. And So sure. uh, uh, I think either vicryl or silk is fine with me, I don't care that much.
1: So along the same lines, as far as leak, is there any utility leaving a, uh, a drain at all in your practice?
0: I don't, interestingly enough. Uh, if you look at the leak, re-leak rates for a perf-DU after you've patched it, it's under 5%. It's probably 4%. It depends on who you read, um, which is down in the range of a lot of other routine anastomoses we do that, don't, that, that, that we don't drain. So I, uh, I don't normally... Uh, drain them. I know people who do, uh, but if you look in the old literature, um, you know, people didn't used to drain them at all. I think just recently, in the past 20 years, people have started to drain them more, um, but I tend not to drain them is my particular bias about it. I, I, I wouldn't normally drain an anastomosis uh, that's going to leak um, that occasionally. Um, we don't, for example, routine small bowel Anastomosis leak in that range, and we don't drain them. Uh, so, anyways, that's my bias about it. But if you do, I don't, I don't think it's the most important decision you made that day. If you choose to drain it,
1: that's great. So, and then any utility for you know the less common entity is a, is a perforated gastric ulcer. We we're always trained that you know it's, it's a perforated malignancy and tool proven. Otherwise, you still routinely biopsy gastric perforated disease.
0: Well, it depends on where it is. You know, the ones that are a couple centimeters from the pylorus are peptic, and they look just like a peptic ulcer. Uh, in fact, you have to look carefully to find the pylorus to figure out which side it's on. Uh, those I don't. I treat them just like a perf de if they're a centimeter or so north of the, of the pylorus, proximal pylorus. On the, on the other hand, the ones that are up on the greater curvature or, or otherwise, yeah, I, I, my first preference is to wedge the whole thing out is the easiest thing to do, um, and but I you know I like to come away with some sort of sense about what I'm dealing with if I can. They tend to be uh, perforate gastric ulcers tend to be bigger and harder to manage just to uh, patch them. So for me, um, mobilize if it's on the greater curvature, for example, mobilizing the greater curvature and just taking a stapler and wedging out the the greater curvature tends to be easier. On the lesser curvature is where they're hard. It's in the mid-lesser curvature and you're, you're convinced it doesn't look peptic, it's a tough spot because you start resecting that, you're gonna do a total gastrectomy. Just try to wedge it, you're gonna you end up taking the whole blood supply to the lesser curvature. So probably a biopsy and then plugging it may be the best way. Mm-hmm.
1: So back to the DU, the particularly challenging clinical scenario is the giant so-called duodenal ulcer, you know, defined as greater than two centimeters. There's, you know, notably an increased risk of uh, failure within a mental patch uh, leak rate is up, you know, up to twelve percent. In that setting, what what would you consider a standard management?
0: You know, nothing easy there because whatever you do, uh, you're going to be unhappy with. Sometimes uh, you can you can um, open it onto the stomach right across the pylorus, and then use uh, basically. That mobilized antrum that you've created by by opening it up to fold down over the hole and then suture it shut. So what you're what you're recruiting then is you're recruiting fresh fresh tissue, which is the antrum of the stomach, to come down to help cover cl- the hole. Um, that is a an option um, that I've used. The a more complicated option is to create a roux to put over the hole, but then you get another, make another ni- diagnosis and it get, starts to get complicated. So I'm not sure I'm altogether happy with that option. Uh, and I would not consider that as my favorite choice. So I would guess making it into a pyloroplasty and, and recruiting a bunch of stomach down there on no tension uh, to fold over to see if I can get a nice, well-vascularized, viable uh, stomach uh, to be cu- help cover the hole. Now. There are times when the whole thing is really, really brawny and, and it's awkward to do that, in which case you put your patch on and you drain the heck out of it and deal with it.
1: Mm-hmm. So when you say rule, you bring it up uh, basically, Rue and a Y, do the endogenostomy. So yeah. Display, yeah. And
0: yeah. I mean, the nice thing about that is that it may leak, but it. it it's like anything else that leaks that has got a roux on it so, you know you, you got to leak you got to deal with that but but you haven't uh, you haven't harmed yourself too much because your roux is defunctionalized, obviously because it's a roux so it's not a bad option it brings fresh tissue up this vascularized um, i don't know that they heal any better uh, than some of the other things we talked about but i think these are all logistical nightmares sometimes which it what i what i advise people not to do is start try not to resect the duodenum because If it's a giant duodenal ulcer, you'll be at the ampulla before you know it. And I have taken care of those patients on people who decided that I better just resect D1 and a half, and they accidentally included the ampulla vater in their closure of the duodenum, and I had to go back and reconstruct them. So you gotta temper your enthusiasm to do a giant duodenal resection, because that uh, can lead to trouble. Absolutely, yeah, the
1: post-ball bar, you know, uh, Zollandri-Allison patient, for instance, that can be, you know, dangerous to close to the very ampere. Yeah. And yeah. In, in terms of post-op care, um, just a few kind of debatable points. Do you routinely cover them with antifungal therapy? You know, mm-hmm. everybody gets the standard H. pylori treatment or, you know, post-op or testing for H. pylori, the 14-day course, but
0: is, is diflucan part of your uh, regimen? It, it's not for the patient who comes off the street. It would be for the patient who's sitting around the MICU, because um, I do think they have different flora. The um, And you might argue if they perforate on suppression off the street, then they should be covered in a different way. But most of the patients who have too much acid and perforate don't really have the kind of infectious complications you're worried about because their overabundance of acid has kept down their bacterial counts and their fungal counts in their stomach. And so they don't have the same wound complications and the same uh, flora that that you see with other GI tract perforation. I, that is not true on the patient who comes, in, that's in the laying around the intensive care unit with another problem. Uh, you know, the neuro patient who's had a big stroke and then perforates an ulcer. That patient's been in the hospital a long time. They're colonized. You've probably had them suppressed and they perforated anyways. Uh, those patients, you have to cover them with a, a broad spectrum, including fungal coverage. Mm-hmm. And in terms of follow-up, do you routinely uh, study the patient's post-op? you
1: get an upper GI to look at the area of repair? Or you just kind of watch for clinical signs of um, deterioration or concerns for a leak?
0: Yeah, I think clinically it's really obvious. If if you patched it well and it's gonna heal, they their upper gut starts to work in two or three days and they do fine. The only ones that get, should be studied are the ones that are struggling for some reason. And you can study those. You'll have occasionally, some of them will have a pocket of fluid up over the liver that you didn't get out uh, and you have to put a drain in that. But I don't routinely study them. Again, the leak rate of a patch of, of in the 5% range and so that wouldn't be something that would automatically prompt uh, a gastrographin. Uh, I do study them long term, though. A couple months later, they all need to be studied because uh, you haven't. You got to make sure you've actually treated the ulcer. You've treated the perforation. You got to treat the ulcer disease and make sure you follow that to completion. So they do need follow up, some sort of evaluation of whether uh, their ulcer diathesis is improving. And
1: if they if they test positive for H pylori, do you Initiate you initial treatment, how do you, do you verify eradication uh, post up in the office or do you get some sort of testing, either breath testing or still antigen, to make sure that's eradicated?
0: Well, typically what would happen is I, I would have them upper endoscoped in two months, and then they use the sample during the upper endoscopy, and then you can tell whether uh, they still have H. pylori. That's how I handled it. Got it. We haven't talked about whether to do definitive ulcer therapy during okay, perforation. I'm I'm sure. That? Yeah. You, you just want to make one say one thing about that. No. Okay. <laughs> That's no. no is the usual
1: that. answer. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. No is the usual answer. There are rare occasions, and uh, that and there's pretty good data that we've published and others have published that these days, if you get a good patch on there and come back another day to treat that ulcer disease other ways, you're probably just as good off. As, as you are in doing some sort of fancy ulcer operation, you might argue that a cigarette smoker who is on a PPI who perforates may do better with a vagotomy because you've added something to their therapy. If they're already and then if they're not going to stop smoking uh, and they already were on PPI, uh, the question is adding something to that is going to help them. that's a that's an open question, but that's that that rare patient where the recurrence rate is so high um, and the cigarette smokers are in that category, are the only ones why I consider it. But the usual answer is no, just patch the ulcer. Sorry, I digressed a little bit.
1: No, that's great. I, You know, particularly for younger listeners, I suspect, uh, and I include myself in that category, the, the number of vagonomies we've done can probably be counted on one hand. Um, certainly only truncal vagonomies we're talking about here, right?
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't even teach highly selective agotomy anymore. Um, I think it's an operation that died in unnatural death, really. It, it, was, it was an interesting and wonderful operation technically. It had a little resurgence laparoscopically because it's a fun operation to do laparoscopically. But in reality, the ulcer disease we're dealing with today, that can't be handled with routine PPI, is not gonna get better with a highly selective agotomy. It's not, it's not, it, you know, the recurrence rates after highly selective were always higher than, va- than truncal vagotomy, they always were in all the old literature. So if, you, if you're talking about an, uh, in fairness an operation that was never as good as truncal and you got ulcer disease that's much more harder to treat, I really don't think it has a role anymore. So I don't, I don't recommend it, I don't teach it. Uh, I think it's part of our history. There are uh, GI surgeons my age who disagree with that because they, they, it's a great operation, but I, I can't see it as something that I could teach and have somebody safely do it once every five years and get away with it. I, I just don't think it's appropriate. Yeah. Can you can you share
1: with us some tips and tricks as far as doing a truncle? You know, since it's kind of a less common operation.
0: Yeah. I mean, a trunk should be. You should be. Everybody should be able to do it. And um, because in our training we do operate on the hiatus, and you do in, in trauma and a variety of other situations, you have your hands on the on the upper, on the lower esophagus. I think the the key to the operation really is getting safely around the esophagus, which you have to do um, most of the time to do truncal vagotomy. And so understanding how to safely dissect the cura off the esophagus at the GE junction is critical. And then safely getting a Penrose drain around it is how most people do it. And then once you have your Penrose in your hand around the GE junction, you're either gonna be having your uh, your, uh, fingers move posterior to anterior to feel the posterior vagus, so you basically are trying to feel something that's a banjo string, something that has some tension on it because that will be a nerve, and you sweep your fingers posteriorly and as you come to the patient's right side, as you come, your, your fingers are going from left to right behind the esophagus, and as you come up that right side as your fingers are behind it, you're gonna feel a structure that feels like a rubber band. Um, and it's going to be sitting just to the right and posterior, and it's going to be relatively large. It's not a small nerve at all. Um, That's the best way to find it. And then anteriorly, to find the anterior vagus, you often have to take out the nasogastric tube um, um, because you're pushing down on the esophagus now uh, towards the spine, and and as you push down on the esophagus, it is what has a little bit of tension in that anterior wall. Again, it's a small a banjo string on the anterior wall, and you'll feel it. It'll, it'll provide a little bit more tension on your fingers as you push down towards the spine. And it's easier done uh, if the nasal gas, the gastric tube is out.
1: And then basically you
0: clip-clip, resect the segment,
1: center for frozen. And yeah, I, I do. I do, and I, you know,
0: I, like to, I like to confirm I've got it. I, if it's daytime, I always get a frozen. Um, if it's nighttime, you may or may not be able to get it frozen. You know, if it's two in the morning, um, you know it depends on how, how much your pathologists are going to hate you in the morning. But uh, uh, if it, it is occasionally, you miss it. And occasionally, I miss it. You know, occasionally you think you got it, but what you got is 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 a blood vessel occasionally. So you might miss it. So that's why if, if I have the facility to freeze it, I always freeze it. Mm-hmm. And then. Any concerns about, uh,
1: you know, particularly, let say the giant Dean also, we talked about feeding access, do you consider
0: being in the prolonged general access, surgical feeding access in those patients? I try not to put other holes in the GI tract if, um, if I've already fixed a hole in the GI tract. So I, I don't put J-tubes in or things like that if I'm dealing with a perforation. Well, so. You can get a off down sometimes. You can put them on TPN short term. So I try not to... Try not to do that.
1: All right, that's great. So, the now the bleeding due to the ulcer, um, still you know, still fairly common. Here, the management entails you know, resuscitation, you know, and then an attempt at endoscopic uh, hemostasis. How do you decide when to actually intervene surgically? Is there a magic threshold number of units transfused or? just failure of other interventions, once you make the diagnosis, either rule out a variceal bleed or uh, you know, a gastritis. I know your group published on this as well in terms of you know, hemorrhage control and then the, the, the surgical approach.
0: Yeah, I think you know, the trouble is that everybody deserves an endoscopic attempt, right? Our bias is you should get two endoscopic approaches, not just one. And so we, we, we think that you should try twice endoscopically. The problem is if you do that, you're never gonna be operating in six units of blood, which is what you sh- you know, that's the time-honored number is when they get to six units of transfusion, you should go ahead and operate. Well, the way the logistic goes about getting these patients through this is by the time you got the second endoscopy done, you, sometimes you're up to 10 units, just, just by the timing of it. And so the six units of blood is a goal for me, um, but, but I do insist if there's any way, shape, or form to get two endoscopies. Now, if the endoscopist says, you know, we looked the first time, there was no way we were going to get that thing stopped, it was too big or too complicated or whatever, and they may say that, then so be it. But almost always, I would say, in in our institutions, upward of 90% of the time, the endoscopists look twice before they give up. Now, is
1: there any uh, rule for... um interventional radiology or any, any angiographic technique for you know, an upper GI bleed from, from an ulcer, if you confirm the ulcer as the as etiology, the as a culprit?
0: You know, the way it generally works, again, at our institution, and this varies a lot, we have great IR. Our interventional radiology is outstanding. And so I would guess we do a little bit more of that than other places do. So the question is, is it two endoscopies straight to surgery, or two endoscopies a trial of IR and try to embolize the GDA, and then surgery, and, and that's an interesting controversy. We probably do a little bit more uh, embolization than other folks do because our interventional radiologists are A, great, and B, they come in. We call them, they come in. Uh, they're very aggressive. I would guess on a patient who is, comes in and the problem they have is a duodenal ulcer that's bleeding right off the street, they're probably gonna get two endoscopies and go to the OR unfortunately, most of the patients have had some other disease, right? They're hanging around the hospital with something else. They had terrible pneumonia, or they had a cabbage, or they had something else, some, or they had an LVAD in or something else. So they're very complicated patients. We often will embolize those patients first, and if that fails, then operate, which then puts your operation at 15 units of blood, of course. But that, so we tend to select the patient's who are in the hospital anyways, they've un- got some other disease, some terrible cancer or something they're being operated, they're being treated for, they develop ulceration, they bleed, two endoscopies, often a trip to radiology. If that works, great. If it doesn't work, then we operate. Yeah, that's,
1: that's been our experience as well. Like, oftentimes we actually only get called after, you know, uh, bleeding's been refracted to these other modalities. They've been scoped a couple of times, clips or injection or you know, thermal approaches to stopping the bleeding and then maybe IR angelization, Then we, we you know, we get consulted for uh, the kind of s- sort of the last resort option. But so again, you, you're in, in the OR and we're going to operate on a bleeding. Do you, the traditional approach is, you know, mobilizing duodenum, and then do you like to do the, uh, describe you know, three-stitch technique?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it is true that the... The blood vessel that runs behind the duodenum, the, the the GDA that bleeds, often has a little medial extension, and you do you have to make sure it gets controlled. Um, and so, you know, I think the the plan has to be you got to make a hole big enough to do your work. Don't be making a tiny little duodenotomy. Make sure you can see it well. Your duodenotomy will cross the pylorus because you'll end up closing a pyloroplasty, is what you'll close, and so open it up big enough put stay sutures on it so you can see it, look at that ulcer and then make sure you get it plicated well and make sure you get all, you know, look, if you can carefully see the blood vessel, uh, then make sure you've got all the branches and it's often a three-point ligation. Um, I will also, occasionally, sometimes, I'll close the ulcer bed. You can do that sometimes, too. If it's not very big, you find yourself actually closing so the back wall is completely closed shut. If you can do that, great. Uh, sometimes you can't because it's too big.
1: Mm-hmm. How about an anti ulcer procedure here, vagotomy, or is it the same uh, as you know the periphery to just take care of the bleeding and and get out?
0: Well, you know I you know we've written a paper about this. We did right. a big Cochrane review, mm-hmm. and you know I can't explain it, but the patients who did the best had had an added vagotomy. Not the, the ones that got resected where you did a an vagotomy and trectomy, they did the worst. Uh, not, you know, you've know, got to understand, it's a retrospective NISC group review. So it may be biased, of course, because for some reason, somebody decided to do a big operation. But it is what it is, all the data we have. And the patients who did the best in our series that we looked at had vagotomy and pyloroplasty. And the ones that just had oversaw the ulcer did in between, and so I've sort of modified my approach a little bit, and so now uh, I will I will uh, add vagotomy if it's at all reasonable. Now, fair enough. I've done a lot of vagotomy, and so um, I will I will teach a vagotomy to whoever's in the room. and If I'm doing a vagotomy, about twelve residents will show up so they can watch the vagotomy because they haven't seen one. Um, but I do uh, I do think it's that's what the data says. I don't dismiss it completely. Now, having said that, I always say that with caution to the folks that I talk to, because in the middle of the night, if you've oversowed that ulcer successfully and you don't know how to do a vagotomy, you better just get out. I don't want people adding vagotomy just because my paper said so and have it be their first vagotomy. Because if you injure that esophagus, you feel bad about it, that's for sure. And, and you can do it Absolutely. if you haven't. If you're not familiar with mobilizing the esophagus, you can put your finger through it, so you've got to be careful.
1: Yeah, absolutely, less is more in terms of just, you know, taking care of the problem. Yeah. Have you seen any uh, negative uh, impact of sequela from vagotomy in terms of gastric emptying issues, or is it fairly well tolerated?
0: You know, interestingly enough, all that literature about post-vagotomy syndrome pretty much went away. And you've got to remember, you know, in a big hospital like Duke, they were doing three ulcer operations a week really common operation, right? Mm -hmm. It was one of the most common operations that residents learned how to do in the 50s and 60s. And so when you're doing hundreds and hundreds of vagotomies, you're going to see that one or 2% that have complications of vagotomy. Because you've got all these patients sitting around coming back to your clinic with vagotomy. You're going to have some with post-vagotomy diarrhea. You're going to have some who have some sort of stomach dysmotility or, or other other misery. If you're doing one every five years, you've got to operate till you're 200 years old to see one that has a complication of egotomy. So it, it's just, it was an uncommon complication It only became famous because we did so many ulcer operations. Now that we don't anymore, nobody sees them.
1: Interesting. All right, any final thoughts, Dr. Pappas, about our uh, topic here before we wrap up?
0: You know, I always advise young surgeons, you know, you know, hopefully you're in an environment where you can ask because invariably there's somebody around who has some experience with it. And so, uh, and, and you should never, never be ashamed to pick up the phone and call somebody um, uh, because that's often the most important phone call you'll make on that patient. And sometimes you just need to talk to somebody on the phone particularly if you haven't done it before um, because most of, most of us who have trained in surgery, you've trained in a very broad way, and you basically know the stuff, and sometimes getting a little hint from somebody on the phone is enough to get you through something. So uh, that's my advice, is particularly if you haven't seen it. And so it's pretty – if you're a young person, you're on call, you may get your first two or three years taking general surgery call and not see a perforated ulcer, and then suddenly you'll see two or three in a row, and calling for a little bit of help is not a bad thing.
1: Without question, yeah. Outcomes over pride. So Yep, every time. Yeah. All right, Dr. Ted Pappas, Professor of Surgery at Duke. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any more exciting programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking, and building relationships development remember that all you need to do is look to the east